welcome to the Volva Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on vulvovaginal health. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Melissa Mouskar, who's a dermatologist at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and she takes care of a lot of vulvar patients. Hi, Dr. Mouskar. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Today, we're going to talk all about lichen planus. So why don't you tell us what that is? Great. So lichen planus, you know, it's a chronic condition that we see in women. Um, It's a T-cell mediated disease. T-cells are a type of lymphocytes that circulate in your body. And in lichen planus, they attack the junction between the epidermis and the dermis, which are two levels of your skin. And you can see this condition commonly on the skin. So it can present just as itchy papules that are purple, polygonal, but it also can present in different mucous membranes. So people can have it in the mouth and on the vulva. And on the vulva, there's actually a couple different forms. So there's a classic form that are these purple papules, like I was talking about on the skin. There's an erosive form that I think is the most common that we'll probably end up focusing on today. And then there's a hypertrophic form that's a little thicker. And how common is vulvovaginal lichen planus? So I think in the population, we don't really know. It's about 2%, which um, is where, what I've seen in a couple different studies. In my practice, it's about... I want to say 25% of my practice. So I have a lot of patients with lichen planus. I say about 50% of my practice is actually lichen sclerosis, which is something we see a little bit more commonly. But I've got a ton of patients with lichen planus, and it can be really you know, difficult for patients. It's, like I said, a chronic condition. So it's something that we kind of have a journey with together. And how does it usually present? So most often, patients come in with pain. And so I'd say pain is one of the most common presenting features of of erosive lichen planus. Some can have itch, but about, I want to say 70 to 80% have pain when they come in. And so I actually have this. There's a lot of things that can cause pain in the vulva. And so I have this on my mind whenever I see patients with this. And in my practice, I actually have patients fill out a questionnaire. So they fill out this questionnaire at home before I see them. And so I'm able to review some of the symptoms and some of the treatments that they've used before I even walk into the room. And so I'll look on that questionnaire and if they note that they have pain or burning in the vulva, LP always comes on my mind and I want to make sure that's the condition I don't miss. Some also have itching, but um, mostly it's pain. And then what do you look for on exam? So the first thing I look for, I actually look in their mouth first, um, because believe it or not, a lot of patients, up to 40 or 50% of patients can have this in their mouth, even before they get it in their vulva or their vagina. And so I look in their mouth and in their mouth, I'm looking at the sides of the mouth, the buccal mucosa along the gingiva as well uh, for erosions or white Wickham striae. It's kind of this reticular patch on the buccal mucosa. And if I see anything there, then that kind of piques my interest that they might also have it in the vulva. And then on the vulva, the classic presentation of erosive lichen planus is this red erosive looking lesion. And it's actually in the introitus. And classically, it has a white kind of linear thready border all along the medial labia minora um, into the introitus. They can have some involvement up to the clitoral hood, but it classically spares the labia majora um, and even sometimes the lateral intralabial sulcus. 
but that red kind of erosive appearance is pretty classic. And then again, it can extend into the vaginal mucosa as well. So it's really important to do a speculum exam whenever you see that well-demarcated erosion to make sure that they don't have vaginal involvement. And a lot of times you'll also see some features on, on your wet mount. So if you suspect erosive lichen planus, you'll see tons of parabasal cells um, and white cells on that wet mount. Now that's not specific for lichen planus, but it definitely can help hone your differential and, and your suspicion for it. Are biopsies helpful with this disease? They are. And it's kind of controversial, actually, because for lichenoid processes, um, which lichen planus is one, and lichenoid basically just means that you have lymphocytes lining up at the dermal epidermal junction. So that's what we mean by lichenoid. It's a band of inflammation right at the um, DEJ. And so you'll see a lichenoid eruption in lichen planus, and you can also see that in lichen sclerosis. So I don't know in your practice, but in my practice, I have several patients that come in thinking they have lichen sclerosis because they had a biopsy that showed a lichenoid infiltrate, but then clinically, it looks more like lichen planus. I'll kind of read through that pathology report, and they have the absence of some of the sclerosis that's seen in lichen sclerosis, and maybe more features of erosive lichen planus. And so I do think they are helpful. I biopsy all my patients where I'm suspicious for erosive lichen planus because, you know, there are other things that you don't want to miss. You know, having those erosive plaques sometimes can mimic DVIN. They can also sometimes mimic mucosal membrane pemphigoid. But I think it's good for patients, especially some of these patients, you know, they've had this condition. I've got some patients that have had this condition for 10 years. And so sometimes it's good for us to have that lichenoid infiltrate to support our diagnosis, but it's also helpful for patients to be able to say, hey, someone did a biopsy and we're getting closer to know what I have and why I have it. I mean, some of these things also depend on your pathologist and your specimens. So sometimes you get a nonspecific biopsy that doesn't confirm your lichen planus. And I find that actually more common with lichen planus than lichen sclerosis, but that doesn't mean the patient doesn't have it. Yes. And I, I think that's a really, really important point to make. And I mean, sometimes your clinical suspicion is so high and you get that nonspecific biopsy. A lot of times I am a tertiary referral center. So I see lots of patients that have already had biopsies. They've already been started on the right medicine, but maybe the biopsy didn't go to a pathologist that specializes in skin or genital disease. And so I think that's kind of my step one, especially if someone comes in with a nonspecific biopsy. Step one is where did that tissue get sent to? If it was sent to someone that I'm not familiar with, I'll ask my dermatopathologist, hey, do you know this person? Or do you think we should get this sample and relook at it? And then sometimes it's still nonspecific. And in that case, if my suspicion is high and it just says chronic inflammation, but it doesn't say anything about lichenoid band, I think the mistake that some clinicians make is they biopsy too medially or too far into the introitus. You really need to get that transition zone of the non-involved skin and the involved skin. So it's really helpful when there's that linear thready border because you want to do your biopsy right across that border um, so that that linear line is right smack dab in the middle of your biopsy. And for these kind of patients, I think doing a modified uh, shave biopsy is adequate for the depth of tissue. So what is that? 
So that's when, and you may have already talked about this in a different podcast, but you know, that's where you take your stitch and go right over that linear thready border and then get a very sharp set of scissors or gradle scissors and take an ellipse of tissue right under that lifted stitch. Um, you can also do a punch biopsy using that keys punch. I find that when you do a punch biopsy, I don't know what you do when you take punches, but I like to go ahead and put a stitch in, especially if it's greater than three millimeters, because those punches can take a really long time to epithelialize and heal. So sometimes up to three weeks if you don't put a stitch in. I know that's kind of getting off track a little bit, but basically when the you have a nonspecific biopsy, um, if your clinical suspicion is high, look at where the specimen went consider rebiopsying, but don't let that trump your clinical impression. And if your clinical impression is that it's erosive lichen planus and they've got a lot of features of it, I think treating them for that is definitely appropriate. 100% agree. And so why don't we talk about what some of the common treatments are? Awesome. So in my practice, you know, it really depends on if they have limited vulvovaginal disease or if they have oral mucosal disease as well some of the other questions you want to ask patients before you start treatment to help decide what treatment you want to give depends on their review of systems. So for instance, when I see patients, I see that their vulva is involved. Erosive lichen planus is way up on the top of my list. I want to ask if they have any problems with heartburn or reflux because erosive lichen planus can actually involve the esophagus. And it actually can get to the point where patients, I have one patient that only has four millimeters left of her esophagus. And so she has to get serial dilations of her esophagus every month with local steroid injections. So you want to screen them for difficulties swallowing with the esophagus. Sometimes it can affect the eyes. Um, it also can affect the ears. So, you know, if it's localized vulvar disease, I'll start with ultra potent topical steroid like clobetasol ointment or betamethasone ointment. Um, and I'll have patients do that twice a day. I found that they need to treat twice a day for at least two to three months. And a lot of patients, you know, they might start feeling better after the first week or two, but you're really not going to heal those erosions until it, it's a good two to three months down the line. So that's localized disease. And if patients have localized vulvar disease, they come back to me, they're using that topical steroid and it's not getting better. My next step uh, is to go with intralesional catalog. And so the intralesional catalog, you can inject to the areas of erosions and I'll do that. I'll typically start out at a strength of 10 um, milligrams and I'll do that monthly for three months. And for a lot of these women that can really heal those erosions. And then if at that point they're not getting better, then sometimes it's important to rebiopsy them because you want to think of those precancerous conditions. But if they're not improving at that point, then I'll move to my systemic therapy. And systemic agents are also what I use for patients that have oral disease that's symptomatic, esophageal disease. And so that's where you kind of want to up the ante a little bit. Which systemic therapies do you find work best? So off the bat, unfortunately, we don't have any FDA-approved medications to treat erosive lichen planus. I hope over the next five to 10 years, more sites will be able to collaborate and we can kind of see what we can do. There was actually a really great study that tried to, the HELP trial over in Europe that tried to establish which agent would work the best of the ones that we most commonly use, maybe for a, another time in this podcast. But but my go-to starting off is, is typically prednisone. Patients need to be on 0.5 milligrams per kilogram up to one milligram per kilogram for a month or two to get them under control. 
typically I just do it for four weeks. It's a rescue medicine. So, so I think that that's what you want to get on board early to get them under control. If patients need that rescue more than two to three times a year, we really need to get them on a steroid sparing agent. And because this is a chronic condition, I'd say that most of my patients that have systemic disease or need systemic treatment, I'll have to put them on a steroid sparing agent because of all the side effects that happen with prednisone. And so there's a ton of steroid sparing agents we can use for this condition. I think classically, things like methotrexate, uh, mycophenolate, mofletil, plaquenil, acetretin. And whenever we see this laundry list of things, we know that there really aren't any good head-to-head trials to find out what agent is better than the other. With this condition, I find a lot of it depends on the patient comorbidities. If a patient has they're overweight or they have hypertension, if they have renal disease, methotrexate is not the option for them. You know, you might want to start with uh, mycophenolate. Historically, I haven't thought that Plaquenil did that great a job with erosive lichen planus, but I actually have got have one patient that we've pushed her to the upper limit of normal. Gosh, she's actually getting 600 milligrams a day, which is a little bit higher than the five milligram per kilogram recommended dose. But she swears that it's the only thing that she's been on over the past 20 years that has really helped her disease. And there's a lot of new agents on the horizon as well. Tacrolimus, oral tacrolimus is something that a couple of years ago, there was a great case series of three patients um, where all the patients with erosive disease improved. I started on a couple of patients. I didn't have as good of responses with them, but maybe it was my patient selection. There's another um, new medication, tofacitinib. It's a JAK kinase inhibitor. I think there's an article in press right now looking at treating patients with erosive lichen planus um, and oral erosive disease, they've had really good responses to that medicine too, which it it kind of makes sense because it's a T-cell mediated treatment. And so that's something I haven't personally started any patients on, but I think the next patient I have that has maybe failed some of these other more classic treatments, I might try to push for them to get that medication. But you know, there's a lot on the horizon because I don't think that there's a good one drug fits all yet. Hopefully in the future, we'll have more of that. And what do you think about the patients with the vaginal involvement? So the scarring or the very erosive vagina, like, do you think that they're better with systemics or do you also use topical steroids inside the vagina and dilators? What's your... Yes. Can't forget about the vagina. Um, So I think it's really good to start with topicals. So I don't think that the 25 milligram suppositories are typically strong enough for these patients. I compound a little bit stronger, up to 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone for suppositories for these patients. I think that a lot of them may need systemics as well. I've got some really great gynecologic surgeons here at UT that I work with that have done some procedures to kind of open up some vaginas that have also had some stenosis. Um, And so I think there was a really great paper that Hope Hafner published several years ago about after surgical care for these patients and needing to use dilators and high dose, like I think up to 300 or 500 milligrams of hydrocortisone suppositories and, and tapered over a two to three month period. Because I think that A lot of these patients, you know, when they have the vaginal involvement, 
It's often caught late, unfortunately, and so some patients already have stenosis. But I think the goal when they come into your office is try to determine early if they have that vaginal involvement. So you can A, start with suppositories, and then B, up the ante if you need to, to put them on systemics. I think dilators can be helpful. I don't know, do you use dilators in your practice with these patients? Um, Sometimes, because, you know, there's people born with, for example, vaginal agenesis, and a lot of them can build an entire vagina with just dilating. And the surgeries are really, for those patients, don't actually usually work any better than just, they can actually build a complete vagina on their own dilating with motivation. So I always use that as an example to people about why it's worth making an effort. However, I mean, if things are extremely inflamed, it's going to be very sore. So you obviously have to calm your inflammation too, right? Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is that all, as you said, all these things are off labels. So it always costs money to get things compounded into suppositories, but really almost any steroid cream you could probably use in the vagina off label. Right. And so sometimes we steal our applicators for our estrogens and things and use them to sort of dose into the vagina. Yeah, that's a really great point. You know, I take care of a lot of patients with Stevens Johnson and toxic epidermal necrolysis. Um, My other hat when I'm not seeing vulvar patients is actually I'm an inpatient dermatologist. So I see patients that are hospitalized for derm rashes and a large subset of them have SJS or TEN and work with my gynecology colleagues. And we kind of coat that dilator sometimes with clobetazole or uh, betamethasone um, when you do the insertion for the erosive disease in the vagina that way too. So I think that's a great point. First, it's hard sometimes to find a pharmacy that will compound medications these days and age, and it can be very expensive. So I think finding workarounds for patients and things that can be practical and that they can do. A lot of these patients are postmenopausal that already have their topical estrogen. And that's the other thing. You definitely don't want to stop patients' topical estrogen treatment, even if they have lichen planus. In my practice, someone comes in, they're already on topical estrogen two or three times a week, and I'm starting them on these topical steroids. I personally do oral diflucan weekly for the first four weeks because they can be at risk for higher or higher um, risk of yeast infections. Um, I know that it's a little controversial because some people think they could be at higher risk of yeast infections at any time in their treatment, which I think is a valid point as well. What do you do for your patients that are on estrogen and steroids or when you're starting steroids? Do you do that same thing or do you have a different I have to wait and see if they actually get the um, yeast infections. I don't necessarily prophylactically treat them because I, I find it's variable between people. Yeah. And then I just wanted to clarify, when you say betamethasone, you mean betamethasone dipropionate. Thank you. Yes, because there's betamethasone dipropionate and betamethasone valerate. And the valerate is actually not as strong as the betamethasone dipropionate. So it's the betamethasone dipropionate 0.05%. I actually like the augmented vehicle because it is a little bit stronger than just the betamethasone dipropionate cream or ointment. So that augmented vehicle uh, is a really nice application for patients. And again, in this day and age, we're even generic medications can be expensive. I find that most insurance plans will either cover the clobetazole, clobetazole 0.05% ointment, or the betamethasone dipropionate and augmented vehicle. So most insurance plans will cover one of those two ultra potent steroids. 
So the US and Canada are so different with drugs, because in Canada, we have generic versions of all these steroids, like they're all generics, and they're all really cheap. So we don't really have a big issue with getting these things covered for people. It's always fascinating to me that there's a difference. But it's funny, because gynecologists don't learn much about steroids, except for the people who do a lot of vulvar disease. (laughs) And I actually teach all the time that when you hear the word beta-methasone, you need to know what the second word is because the resident, our residents don't know that. And the patients often only know the first word if they didn't bring the drug in with them. And it's such a big difference on strength. It is. That's such a good point. I mean, I have a lot of patients that'll come see me, they'll go back to see their other provider and they'll be like, oh, well, they put you on a lower strength medicine than the clobetazole that I put you on. I'm like, well, actually it's because it's that the second word is dipropionate, not the valerate. But I think it's tough. You know, I think dermatology is such, so interesting to me because I think people that don't specialize in areas of skin. So vulvar disease or dermatology, I feel like you don't get a lot of exposure to all. There's like 200 different types of steroids or combinations thereof of steroids and antifungal medicines. And so I think that it's really important to kind of know what what you're using and have a good steroid in each class. For instance, for inner trigo, which is that kind of maceration in, in the skin folds, you wouldn't want to use something like beta-methasone dipropionate to treat that because over time you can get some of those steroid side effects there. But something like a hydrocortisone 2.5% cream is appropriate there. And, and that's the other thing. I know that you guys have touched on this before, but whenever I see any of these vulvar patients in my clinic, well, first of all, everyone gets a picture which is kind of awkward sometimes for patients, but you know, it's part of their disease course. And for erosive LP, sometimes the benefits and the changes we do aren't very noticeable unless you can show the patients the photo. And I say, look, this is when you came in and I know you're feeling better, but look, we've also made a difference with how you look. And so I'll print out a picture for them and I'll actually mark with a marker on the photo. And the photo is an eight by 10, which is much larger than the what they were expecting to get. But it's that full image that I tell them, okay, this is where I want you to put the medicine. I write down on the photo and show them with Vaseline how much to use. I'll say, hey, if you can put this picture against the wall and then also have a full length mirror on the back of a door, a handheld mirror, so you can compare how your vulva looks to this picture and put that medicine only where we want to put it, where you have that red area. And then tell them it's going to be a little painful when they first start to put this medicine medicine on, but that's where we know that you're putting it in the right area. And if you don't feel that same, a little bit of pain when you put it on initially, then you might be putting it in the wrong areas. But spending the extra time to go over how to use those topical steroids with them, I think goes a really long way as well. So the other thing about erosive lichen planus is sometimes you can get the patient's disease and the erosions completely healed. And there's no activity that you see when you evaluate the patient on their follow-up, but they still have some kind of pain and burning. And so I think it's important to remember that up to 40% of patients with erosive lichen planus can also have concomitant vulvodynia and vulvar burning. So I think that making sure that you address that, especially when a patient had bad erosive disease and then the erosions have healed, but they still have persistent pain. Do you have any other important points you want people to know about lichen planus? I think it's really important to know the toll and just to remember the toll that this has had on our patients. I had one patient a couple weeks ago that she had this vulvar pain for 25 years. 
I don't know how long her lichen planus had really been there. It's hard to know, not knowing and not seeing her that long. But, you know, she came back at her follow-up visit and it was just amazing how much of a quality of life improvement she had after that. People that specialize in vulvar diseases and those that are taking the time to listen to this podcast, you know, you can really make a huge impact on your patients and change the course of their lives. They can have sex again with their husband, or, you know, if they're not sexually active, they can masturbate again and it doesn't hurt, or they can just have a normal day-to-day life without having the pain. So it is a chronic condition. And so sometimes it's really tough to get every little erosion healed. That's obviously our goal, but even improving their quality of life and having them not have pain anymore is such a huge improvement for these patients. And it's just such a great reminder of why I went into this specialty when you have those conversations with patients and you see the impact you can make on them. So and I hope that more people want to specialize in this area and treat patients like this. I think that theme just keeps coming up again and again, that there's so many quality of life issues for all these vulvovaginal conditions, so much delay in diagnosis from lack of provider knowledge and awareness. And thank you again for helping us with the podcast so that we can have more and more people learn more about these conditions. Great. Thanks so much. And again, that's Dr. Melissa Mascar, who's a dermatologist at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas.